Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Verse 13, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine or teaching. Continue in them. For in doing this, and notice his language here, in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your infallible word. Your word that you have preserved for your people. We pray, Father, this morning as we read your word, you would cause us to hear it. You would give us understanding of it. And Father, by your spirit, we pray that he would come in power and not only bless the reading and the instruction, the exhortation of your word, but he would come in power and out of the thousand different ways and how your word comes to bear upon our lives. Make it plain, Father. Make it plain. But above all, may we see, may we see your son, the great shepherd. So strengthen, strengthen faith, and grow your people in the truth, we pray this morning, through the instruction of your word. And save, Father, save your people and save sinners. In Christ's name and glory, we pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, again, we come to these final words, these final instructions of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in this chapter. That is the fourth chapter. Now, remember from our previous studies that Timothy was a, a shepherd, a pastor, and he was also unique in that he was a, 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 an apostolic representative, an apostolic representative now, we have in this chapter, if you remember, clear apostolic directives to Timothy, but they apply to all of church leadership in the sense of he's setting forth, the apostle is setting forth to Timothy and to church leadership of what it means to be an excellent or a good minister of Jesus Christ. And what that minister, what that servant is to be and what he is to do in the service of Christ in his church. Now, again, there is much here in this chapter that provides guidance for ministry, for ministry in the church. And possibly for some of you, some of you young men, we pray, we hope that God over time will graciously work in your heart 
and make it plain to you and to us that he's raising up men, future men, to serve here or to serve in other congregations or maybe even overseas in the sense of spreading the gospel, establishing churches. But in any case, to those men that God may call and draw by his spirit to ministry, to labor in his church, in the Lord's vineyard, there is guidance here, and there is an example here of what faithful and excellent good ministry is to look like in the Lord's church, especially concerning leadership. You remember verse 6 of chapter 4, that there is the key phrase that after speaking of the last day apostasy in those opening verses, he, in verse 6, he set for us everything else that this chapter would begin to unfold. Notice verse 6. If you instruct, instruct the brethren in these things, and here it is, you will be a good, or that word can be translated excellent. It can be even translated beautiful. You will be a good minister, a good servant of Jesus Christ. And then he says, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have faithfully followed. And so we've been working our way the past three messages. This is number three of what a good servant or excellent minister of Jesus Christ is to be and to do. And this morning we come now to verse 12, this last section, verse 12. And so let us begin. Verse 12. Our first one for this morning. A good minister of Jesus Christ is to be an example to believers or to the church. Look at verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. And then he gives us this list of virtues of in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. So a good minister is to be an example to the believers. He's to make it known what a true believer is to look like. He's to, to establish it, to set the mark, the example. And Timothy, if you remember, was this young protege of the Apostle Paul. And he was given instructions, even back in chapter 1, verse 3. You remember that? This charge, our command in the way of correcting others to teach no other doctrine, other doctrine, heterodoxy. You remember there were those uh, in, the, in the church that had possibly, we learned from the beginning of this study, even from Acts chapter 20, that possibly even from the eldership itself rose up men teaching false doctrine, other doctrine rather than apostolic doctrine. And Timothy, as a young man, was to was left behind, was set there by Paul to uh, correct this error, to correct others, uh, to charge them, to command them, as it says in chapter 1, verse 3, to teach no other doctrine. And in verse 11 of chapter 4, where we left off last week, Paul instructs Timothy, these things, and these are strong words, command. He, he doesn't say, the things I've left you there to correct, just set it out and 
make, make it, you know, here, uh, if you possibly like these things, maybe you'll consider them. No, he tells him to command, to command and teach. And so what we have is that much of Timothy's labors in Ephesus would be from verse 11. We're beginning to see here are concentrated on teaching the truth. Remember the positive aspect, teaching the truth and then the negative correcting error. And the individuals he would be correcting and teaching were probably men in church leadership fellow elders, fellow elders. And some of these men, Timothy may have to eventually boldly oppose. The men that would be teaching, that he would be correcting, that he would be possibly opposing, would be men that would be further along in age. They'd be older men. And that can be intimidating to a young man. And so while Timothy was to be clear, he was to be unwavering in his teaching. And if they were to attempt to discredit him, he was to, he was to be an example of Christ-likeness. He was to model to them, not only in his instruction, but in the way that he lived, what a faithful shepherd was to be in displaying Christian graces and character. Now, When we read this, we, we believe that Timothy was probably in his mid to late 30s. That was, that was young in the ancient world. For some of us, that's young now, isn't it? Yeah. But elders, especially in the Jewish tradition in the synagogue, you would not be allowed to teach if you were under 30. And most of the men would be like in their 50s or older. And so he's a young man for this. I, I, I think that as he would be there in the life of the church, and though he could come with, uh, with bragging and with the weight of the command of Paul, saying, I've come here by the authority of the apostle Paul. We find in the next chapter that as he would set things right in the church, though he was to teach and to correct, he was also to, to exemplify and remember to be gracious and patient with God's people. I think verse 1 of chapter 5 is pointing to that already. As we move into chapter 5, there will be very practical teachings of the apostle in these closing chapters. But notice what he says in verse 5. Just consider this as Timothy is teaching, correcting, possibly rebuking, how he's to be careful and gracious 
Look what he says in verse 1. Look what Paul says. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Now, no doubt, if that elder, that man, continued in error, ultimately Timothy had to protect and guard the flock. And it could lead to strong, strong opposing and rebuking. But his general demeanor, his, his gracious attitude towards God's people was to be gracious and patient. And he was not to, to come right out of the gate rebuking the older men or the elders, the leadership of the church who would have been older than him. But he was to exhort them as a father. As a father. So again, Timothy was a young man, probably in his mid to late 30s, but he was not, even though he was young, he was not to let anyone look down on him because of his young age. His position as an apostolic representative was to be honored. However, the honor would be gained not by throwing around Paul's name are the credentials. No, he was to gain respect by being an example to the flock. Look at verse 12 again. Let no one despise your youth, but be, but be an example to the believers. Paul's telling Timothy, others may look down on your youthfulness, but make it evident that you may be young in age, but you are mature as a believer. You see, Timothy and all ministers of the gospel are to gain respect among God's people by demonstrating Christian maturity and Christ-like character. Did you hear that? A firm footing as we enter into the life of a church Maybe as a new minister, as a young minister, we will over time, as we labor faithfully, we are to gain respect by demonstrating Christian maturity and Christ-like character. The, the same, basically the same instructions are found in the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, listen to this instruction to the young men. Titus chapter 2 uh, beginning in verse 6, likewise, likewise, he says, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Sober-minded, verse 7, in all things, showing yourself, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Eight, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say against you. Now, what Paul does next is he lists six areas in which Timothy was to be an example to the church. In verse 12, an example to believers. I came close, came close to just this verse being the sermon and going through these six areas, but 
I wanted us to, to make some progress here this morning. So I hope what I have to say drives home the point, even though we'll move quickly through these six areas. Now, some of your Bible, because of uh, there's some, uh, some differences in the manuscripts, some do not have the expression in spirit. The text that we use underneath our English translation has in spirit there in verse 12. So some of you have five, uh, others have six when it comes to these areas. But we will have six. Notice verse 12 again. But be an example to the believers. And the first one that he gives us is in word. In word, that is by his speech. By his speech. As a good minister of Jesus Christ, he was to have godly speech. Secondly, in conduct, he says, in conduct, by his conduct or way of life, as a good minister of Jesus Christ, he was to be godly in his pattern of life. You remember the, how many times we've heard this expression, godliness and exercising toward godliness? You see, this is to be his conduct, his way of life as a good minister, his pattern of life. Verse three, or number three in verse 12. After in conduct and love, he says, number three, in love. So by his love, as a good minister of Jesus Christ, he was to be an example of that hallmark Christian, that hallmark Christian virtue, which is love. The word here is agape. Love. Number four, in spirit. That is, in his spirit, not Holy Spirit. In his spirit, little s. That is, as a good minister of Jesus Christ, he was to be an example by his genuine Christian attitude. A Calvin would say this speaks of a zeal for God. So Timothy would set an example to the flock by his zeal for God. We'll see how that's going to unfold even more, especially as we move through this, especially verse 15 and 16. But number five, in faith, he said, by his faith, a good minister of Jesus Christ was to be an example by displaying trust in God, reliance in God. Not only daily, but through those trials and difficulties that he would find himself in as he would labor at Ephesus. And then number six, the sixth area, the sixth one is in purity, by his purity. As a good minister, he was to be an example by his purity. He was to display the sanctifying work of God's grace in his life by obedience to the truth of God, faithfully walking and living that truth. That, that's the language, again, back in Titus, when Titus would say show, doctrine showing integrity. That is, the teaching of Scripture is integrated, integrity, into the life of the minister, as it is for all, to be for all God's people, but especially for the minister. He was to be faithfully walking in the truth and living that truth. And that leads to a mark of godliness, our holiness, as he obeys God. <clears throat> So the point here, verse, verse 12, 
is that Timothy's life, though he was a young man, he would be able to stand firm among the people in the instruction, this commanding to teach and to instruct boldly. He could do this because his life, even though he was young, was to be marked with spiritual maturity. And again, these areas, these spiritual graces, though, are to be evident in the life of all believers. Timothy as a minister is modeling them, but they're to be evident in all of our lives as God's people, right? Number two, and we move to verse 13. Verse 13, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Number two, a good minister of Jesus Christ is to be faithful to the public ministry of the word. He's to be faithful to the public ministry of the word. Verse 13, we've seen this more than once now. It lists essential elements of the public ministry of the word of God and worship of the gathered church. Again, this is one of those verses again. You can see each verse as I was working through it, there was a thousand things I wanted to say. There's some when we look at a verse like this, we're reminded, if you remember that that that, that language of when Luther would say the church should never gather apart from the without the preaching of the word of God. The idea is, is that when when the church gathers for worship, when we gather for what is known as divine worship. When we gather together as God's people before God, it's not and it cannot be divine worship apart from the word. Because God comes to us, how? Through the what? Through the word. He speaks to us through the word. Now, in the future, we'll begin to uh, talk about, I, there, there's so much, but in the, either in the quipping hour from here about worship, biblical worship. When I say reformed worship, when I say reformed theology, I just mean biblical Christianity. <clears throat> what reformed worship entails, what it means, and the richness, the richness of it. And, and here we find this essential element of pub, the public ministry of worship and of the word of God, the gathered church. Now watch this. Timothy, as a good minister of Jesus Christ, was to, notice the language here, give attention to, your Bibles probably say reading. It actually has the definite article. It's the reading. You remember in previous chapters, we saw prayers that would be offered up in worship service. They were actually the prayers, the prayers, just as there were certain kinds of prayers that were to be regularly offered up. In that case, you remember for those in authority, but certain kinds of prayers that were to be regular in the life of the gathered church. There is readings that would take place. There's language here, there's language here 
that when it speaks of elders, gathering, even these churches that would have deacons, what other institutions had those kinds of things? Anybody remember? Synagogues. And one of the things that they would do, in fact, a lot of these early churches, the apostles would come into those synagogues, use that as a platform to preach, and some of those synagogues would become what? Churches. And part of their worship was the readings. Now, uh, let me just say this. Because of, it, it seems to have happened in evangelical churches through revivalism of the 19th century, much, much of biblical worship has been lost. It became entertainment-oriented rather than God-ordained worship according to the Word. And one of the things that the churches had always done, without exception, were the regular, the readings of the Scripture. There is typically an Old Testament reading and New Testament reading. And those churches, we, we labor to have many readings in our, in our worship of the, scriptures, of the Scriptures. We open with it. We try to open with a word from God, and we close with that call to, that, that benediction, which is a sending a word of blessing from God. Our desire is that we, we open with a word from God where He calls us to worship, and we end with a word from God where He sends us or, or pronounces a blessing upon His people as we go into the world. And Timothy, as a good minister of Jesus Christ, was to give attention to the reading. The reading, that is the public reading of the scriptures. As a, as a faithful minister, Timothy was to be, to, to be devoted to this very specific task. He was to give serious attention to it. Now... Along with the reading of the scriptures, notice what it says. There is to be exhortation. Exhortation. The word exhortation has the thought of preaching. And of course, all preaching has, notice this, he says exhortation and he says to doctrine. And of course, all preaching is to have the element of doctrinal doctrine or teaching, right? And in this case, it is to be apostolic doctrine, the doctrine that unfolds throughout the New Testament. I believe it was Alistair Begg who I heard recently say, when people say, well, so what's the difference between teaching and preaching? And you've heard me say, well, all teaching gets, should get a little preachy and all preaching should have teaching. But Alistair Begg said something along the line, if you don't know the dis distinction between teaching and preaching, you've never heard preaching. But in this case here, the scriptures that they would have had would have been the Old Testament scriptures. And then they were they were gaining books as they were written and distributed among the churches like 1 Timothy they would have read. And through the instruction of the apostles in person or through the letters, they would begin the process now of understanding that of the New Testament apostles' words, interpretation and understanding of the Old Testament. And so they would give serious attention to these things, to apostolic doctrine and the doctrine that would unfold throughout the New Testament. 
Listen to this. You want to know what, you want to know what early church worship looked like? Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived from the year 100 to 165. So he's immediately right after the apostles. In fact, he's known to have connection with Polycarp, who has connection with John. All right. In his first apology, he gave us an example. He writes of what an early uh, second century worship service looked like. He said this, quote, On the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the writings of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has finished, the pastor speaks, instructing and exhorting the people to imitate these good things. As Maury says, but relating to this here, we see that this reading and exhortation became the regular apostolic practice for the churches from this point on. Our thought here, which we look at verse 13, we should realize that, again, a good minister of Jesus Christ is to be faithful to the public ministry of the word. And this should teach us and cause us to realize as a church, there is to be a centrality of the scriptures in our worship service. How it's conducted, it is to regulate it, but it is also there to be constantly read and sung and seen in the table, all these things, but especially the reading of the scriptures and the centrality of it. And there is to be this primacy of preaching that takes place when the church gathers for worship on the Lord's day. Okay? That's number two. Let me move on to number three. <clears throat> Number three, a good minister of Jesus Christ is to faithfully exercise his God-given gifts. He is to faithfully exercise his God-given gifts. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Timothy was reminded here, we are reminded here, that the ability and the strength to carry out ministry faithfully is not of one's own abilities or strength. It's not of one's own giftedness, but it is a grace, a, given, a, a gift given by God. It is a grace of God that is given. Again, notice verse 14. It is a gift given by God, but not to be neglected. If it is neglected, it will be to the detriment of not only Timothy, we'll see before this chapter is over, but also the people of God. An understanding of this should be understood in light of other passages like Ephesians chapter 4, especially Ephesians 4 and verse 11, where the entire chapter of Ephesians 4 is devoted to the thought of those ministerial gifts, those word-oriented gifts of Christ to his church for their edification. And you remember even there he says that he, he gives these gifts to the church so they're not carried away by every wind of doctrine. 
Verse 11 of Ephesians 4. And he, that is the ascended Christ, pouring out his spirit and giving good gifts to his church, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now notice verse 14 again. The gifting, the gifting, God's gracious pouring out of his spirit upon an individual to carry out this task and calling in the life of the church is to be acknowledged by the church by the laying on of hands of the eldership, the council of elders. It's literally, it literally says the presbytery, the presbytery. So the work of God of providing for his church is acknowledged by the approval of the eldership by their laying on of hands. And by the laying on of hands, Timothy was set apart for this work. So when we speak of calling, when men are struggling and wrestling with about ministry, the, the calling is, yes, there is the internal work of the Spirit, but that is affirmed and acknowledged by the local church. If, if, if one says, I have a zeal and a desire for ministry and is never called and acknowledged by a local church, you've never been called. If someone was to ask, as, as I heard another a fellow minister recently say or write, he said, how do you know when you've been called to the ministry? A local church calls you to be their pastor. That's how you know. But there is an acknowledgement by the leadership of the church, the presbytery, the elders, they see that giftedness. There's been times of testing, time to demonstrate it, which has been evidence in life and doctrine. And then the eldership, by the laying on of hands, that is a, word, a, a sign of affirmation. You see it when we set apart our deacons and our elders. You lay upon hands, and that sets them apart to this work. It sets them apart to this work. And in Timothy's case, notice something there. He says, do not neglect the gift that's within, that is in you, which was given to you by, notice this language here, by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. So in Timothy's case, there was some kind of prophetic word, a, a word of some kind uh, that was recognized that took place. But the point here is, that as a good minister of Jesus Christ, Timothy was to faithfully exercise his God-given gifts for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Again, this has implications for all of God's people. Read through 1 Corinthians. As God's people, the mark of God's people, it is the spirit of adoption, the indwelling spirit. And each of us have been gifted with some measure of the spirit and a giftedness to serve within the body of Christ. And if we do not faithfully serve and exercise that gift, it is to the neglect of our own souls, our own growth, and to the detriment of that local body. So again, we're seeing along the way, a pastor was asking me this week, he said, so he asked me where I was, 
where I was at in, uh, in my preaching. And I said, well, I'm in first Timothy chapter four, talking about what is a good minister of Jesus Christ. I'm working my way through that. And he asked me, he said, so how in the world are you applying that to the congregation? You're kind of preaching to yourself, aren't you? And I said, well, I have to keep, I have to keep putting out there that this applies to me, applies to the eldership, to all future leadership. But as the, as under shepherds, under the great shepherd, these are implications where they model and these points also apply to the people of God in general, for he's to model it before everyone, but it applies to all of God's people. Let's move to the last one now. It's in verse 15 and 16. Verse 15 and 16. Watch this. Here we have... A good minister, a good minister, minister is to under, understand the eternal consequences of the work. He's to understand the eternal consequences of the work. In other words, he's to understand what is eternally at stake in his ministry, in his labors. There are things at stake. Watch this. Verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And watch this. In these last two verses... Paul is driving home everything that he's been saying in this entire chapter. He wants Timothy and all church leadership to get this. And, and watch this. Pay close attention and notice this. Each of these verses, each of these verses contain imperatives. In fact, there are two commands. Each verse has two commands, two imperatives, and then it moves to, it's, it's followed by a clause that states the purpose of the command. Watch this. Meditate on these things. Meditate, and then watch. Give yourself to the, yourself entirely to them. Why? that your progress may be evident to all. You see that? Verse 16, take heed. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Other command, continue in them. Why? For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Do you see that? How it's laid out there? He's building back to back the, the entire purpose, driving home the purpose of this chapter. Now watch this as we unfold this. Verse 15. Here's the first imperative. Meditate on these things, he says. That is, Timothy, fix your attention on these things. Abide in the instructions that I have been giving you. And give yourself, verse 15, entirely to them. Meditate on them, dwell on them, fix your attention on them, and give yourself entirely to them. A minister is to devote himself to the apostolic instruction. In other words, God's word. Timothy was to devote himself to the task given to him by Paul. 
A good minister of Jesus Christ is to be absorbed in these things. Now listen. When it comes to calling and to perseverance, this is essential. When I look at the men who have persevered in pastoral ministry, there are clear commonalities. There are clear commonalities. There are men that I can have lunch with or coffee with and our discussion is focused upon theological discussion, books we are reading, things that are going on in the life of the church, the, 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 the broader church or culture, discussing ministry. And then there are other guys that you may meet for lunch or coffee, and they want to talk about skateboard evangelism. Yeah, yeah, that really happened. There's a difference there. The, the men, the men that now, after this many years of ministry that I've noticed that have persevered. And by the way, the men that graduate from seminary, the stats after looking back up again, but it's like about 10 percent, 10 percent of graduates end up by the time of 65 being still in ministry. The other 90 percent have fallen away, retired, left. So it, it, it's not ultimately about education. It's about giftedness. And, and this being absorbed in these things is not something that seems to come about by self-effort, self-motivation, but it's something that happens, that comes upon you. Now, I'm of the older school. Sometimes in reform circles, there's this debate about calling to ministry and about... about uh, giftedness, people seeing these outward things, and then the internal aspect that happens in a man's heart. I'm of the old school like Spurgeon. When men begin to talk to me about pastoral ministry, I will quickly throw out at you, if you can do anything else, do it. Right? If you can do anything else, do it. Because that tells me something. But if you are so compelled, so driven, so absorbed, there's such an obsession for the things of God and for the people of God that you, you so love and you so desire to serve that nothing can be in the way, then that tells me something. That tells me something. The men that I see, the commonality that I see of men who persevere in pastoral ministry year after year. There are men who give themselves entirely to this work. In fact, they are immersed in it. When I hear people say, So, have you gotten a sermon up this week? Gotten a sermon up? 
It's not an issue of what to talk about. There's so much to talk about. It's trying to narrow it down to, to 45 minutes to talk about something. There's too much. Or what do you do on the side for a hobby? What? Some of you know it's hard for me to respond to that because I'm consumed with this. And then I say something and they look at me like I'm crazy. Well, what do you like to do as a hobby? Read? Theology? The Bible? Church history? What else do you like to do? Have folks from the church over at my house? And spend time with my family. That's pretty much the week. Yeah. We live in a time now they go, this, Pastor, that's just unhealthy. <laughs> no, it's called being called and absorbed and committing yourself entirely to these things. We find that here. We find that here. And notice, notice the clause that states the purpose. The reason that Timothy was to, to meditate on these things, to give himself entirely to these things, there are the commands, meditate, give yourself entirely. There are the imperatives. Then he says, here's the clause, that your progress may be evident to all. While we never arrive, not in this life, it is, to, it is to be evident, especially consider Timothy's case as a young man in the context of the church with older men. While, while you never arrive, there is to be true and evident progress that's made, and it should be evident to all. And this is especially true for a young pastor. Now, verse 16. Verse 16. Verse 16. Take heed. Now, there's the imperative. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, to the teaching. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Call Again, is putting emphasis on this important task. Take heed to yourself. Timothy was to keep close watch on his way of life. The way that he lived, it mattered concerning his soul and the well-being of others and their souls. Verse 16, not only take heed to yourself, to your way of life, but to the teaching, to the doctrine Teach the truth. Refute error. And then he says, notice, and Paul then commands Timothy, continue in them. That is persistent and perseverance in faithfulness, in life, and in doctrine. Do you see that? That's successful ministry. Not how the church growth movement defines it. Not how the world defines it. This is these verses here. This is successful ministry in verse 15 and 16. And then look at the end of verse 16. Why this is important. Why this matters, not only for the eldership, for the minister, 
for men who, who are considering uh, laboring in ministry, but also for the people of God, for your souls. Why? Verse 16, for this will save both yourself and those who hear you. Wow. What? Save for this will save both yourself and those who hear you. What? That seems odd. Salvation is all of God, all of grace. We know that. However, this in no way diminishes human responsibility are the means that God uses to bring us to the end. Right? Timothy was not... You, you remember the men whose faith had, had, had brought them? They, they, had, they had shipwrecked their faith. You remember that? Timothy was not to find himself disqualified or to find himself shipwrecked, a castaway, an apostate to the faith. Now, he was to persevere and his ministry as a good minister of Jesus Christ would have eternal consequences upon those who would sit underneath his ministry. There's something here also that we should consider. Um, again, if you continue to walk with us, you'll, you hear us speak of the three senses and tenses of salvation. Right? The three senses and three tenses of salvation, right? Because the Bible, the New Testament, will use expression that we are saved and are being saved, present tense, and will be what? Saved. So it speaks of the senses and tenses of the sense of we are justified, declared not guilty. The penalty of sin has been dealt with. And in the present sense of being saved, that is sanctification, the power of sin has been broken, right? And so that's where we find ourselves. Now, if you have confessed faith in Christ, you've been justified, declared not guilty, the penalty of sin has been dealt with because of Christ, but now you're in the process of growing in holiness and the growth and grace of Jesus Christ, and now the power of sin has been broken in sanctification and we are waiting for the second advent of Christ for when we shall meet him in the air we shall be what? Like him. What do we call that? Glorification. When we will be saved and saved from the very presence of sin. The very presence of sin. Won't that be a glorious day? Calvin Calvin comments, commenting on these, on these, this, uh, this verse here. Listen to his remarks. Quote, he says, It is indeed true that it is God alone who saves, and not even the smallest part of his glory can rightly be transferred to men. 
But God's glory is in no way diminished by his using the labor of men and bestowing salvation. Thus, our salvation is the gift of God since it comes from him alone and is effected only by his power. So he alone is the author. But that does not exclude, exclude the ministry of men, nor does it deny that ministry may be the means of salvation. For it is on that ministry that the welfare of the church depends. Listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 9.22 To the weak I became weak, said Paul, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Or think of that passage where Paul would write in Romans chapter 10. Listen to this. Romans 10, beginning in verse 14. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach, verse 15, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Verse 16, but they have not all, all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, so faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. So pay attention to the reading, and to the exhortation, and to the doctrine, right? Because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. The sovereignty of God the salvation of grace, by grace, God has means. The word, preaching, missionaries, reaching unreached people groups, those are the means. And we take advantage of those. We flee to those. We cling to those week after week in the life of the church. I'm about to run out way over time. Let's get to the supper here. We've heard, we've been given commands here of what a faithful minister, a good minister, an excellent minister of Christ Jesus is to be and to do. Every minister who begins to align himself with these teachings and every Christian, because there are implications for all of us here, will find that we, we come woefully short of what God has for us. You might do good for a few minutes or good for an hour or maybe a day at best, but then you find yourself not loving as you ought to, not being the child of God that he's called you to be. But there was, there was a servant of the Lord, a servant of the Lord who came, and he would serve God with all consuming, all consuming of his, in the, in the sense of who he is, that is the God-man, the suffering servant. He would be the obedient son, the obedient son
And all these qualifications and all these callings that we see here of what a man of God is to be and to do, Christ models it preeminently. Does he not? Without waver as the God-man. And so we look to him. We follow after him. And we acknowledge that not only is he the shepherd and the head of the church, that every, every good and faithful minister of the gospel points our attention to, not to ourselves, but to him. Because he alone is the redeemer and he alone is the savior. Even though he's ordained means, he is the end. And it is he who brings us life and forgiveness. The full salvation that we read about. As we come to the table this morning, we're reminded of these precious promises of the son. The son, the sinless one, bore the penalty of our sins on the cross and gave himself for us. That which we read in the pages of Scripture, we see in the bread and in the cup. His life given and his blood shed for us, that is his people. So let us this morning as we come to the table, let us eat, let us drink, let us receive by faith the promises of God as they are found in his word and made known to us in the table. Let us pray.